This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Spencer Conover, Assistant Director of Pasco County Animal Services, or PCAS. Conover is viewed as a rising star in the animal shelter world, shining at what many consider to be an underappreciated agency, which is not to say significant national attention of either one is lacking. Hardly. For example, a few months ago, PCAS was named Outstanding Animal Care and Control Agency, for 2021 by the National Animal Care and Control Association. The same organization also announced they had selected Conover as Florida's Supervisor of the Year. Conover stepped into the position of PCAS Assistant Director in 2018, arriving with experience that included stints as a Regional Adoption Center Supervisor with Best Friends Animal Society and as Director of Operations at the Humane Society of Utah. We'll trace some of that career path, explore recent challenges facing animal shelters, including the impact of COVID and now inflation, soaring prices at the gas station, grocery store, and elsewhere, diminishes budgets people have for pets, including adopting them, and other topics when I speak with Spencer Conover in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A quick programming note, I'll be guest hosting Nancy C's music show tomorrow from 3 to 6 p.m. I invite you to tune in and uh, we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll talk with Joe Capozzi, who spent 30 years writing for newspapers, most of that time for the Palm Beach Post, and now publishes pieces on his own website, buyjoecapozzi.com, where his latest offering is an excellent, deeply reported piece on the bear-killing story I discussed on the show two weeks ago. Capozzi's article shows how a power struggle between two agencies, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, FWC, who had jurisdiction, and Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, PBSO, who did not, resulted ultimately in the bear's death. More on this later in the show. Right now, though, let's discuss the world of animal shelters with Spencer Conover, Assistant Director of Pasco County Animal Services, Oregon PCAS, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Spencer Conover on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Spencer. Good morning, Duncan. How are you this morning? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for joining us uh, again, I guess I should say, on Talking Animals. We had a brief conversation yeah, a while back. So happy to be here. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. Yeah, so now we have a little more time to talk, and we will cover all kinds of ground in our conversation, which I'm really looking forward to. But to help create some context for things we'll address later, let's first talk a bit of history, namely your history. Sure. So when you were a kid, what role did animals play in your family? Oh, man, when I was a kid, I've been asked this a lot. Um, I remember distinctly my love of animals started. We had um, a little cat that roamed around our neighborhood, and I couldn't have been older than seven or eight years old. And we had a family dog at the time. We had a family cat and, and, you know, typical family animals. Then we took in this kind of stray cat, and it was a little calico cat. And, you know, we named it and, you know, we named it and had it around the house. And for the life of us, we thought it was a boy. We were like, oh, this little boy cat, boy cat. And then our neighbor came over, and you're like, that's a girl cat. You realize calicos are all females, and we had no idea. 
sure enough, the little calico had kittens, and um, and we took care of that little uh, litter of kittens. And me and my brother, um, I remember building out of connects, kind of like Legos, out of connects. We built little mazes for them and took care of these kittens and and nursed them up to health. And um, from there on, animals have always played a huge role. Uh, in my life. It's not what I wanted to do with my career, but ever since then, um, man, cats and dogs have just been so prominent in my life. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, I was going to ask you sort of about the kind of prevailing family attitude, you know, about animals, like were animals sort of beloved, more kind of just an object or something you might have in the house. But it sounds like when taking in that cat that I guess people were pretty pro-animal across the family there. Yeah, it was funny. We really didn't have a um, a dog until... Um, I was probably a little bit younger than that, and I remember a family friend came over, and he had found two stray dogs, and, God, they were beat up. They were just covered in dirt, and I remember he kept one, and he brought them over to our house, and my family friends of my parents, and he looked right at, with me and my brother, me and my younger brother being little kids in the room with big doe eyes, and looked right at my parents and said, every family needs a dog, and, bam, there was the family dog from there on out, and, and we've had dogs and cats ever since, and my mom, you know, has adopted from shelters, and we've taken in rescues, and it's just been... It's been really, um, really important in our family's lives to have those pets and to learn how to care for them. Taught me and my brother responsibility and things like that. And so yeah. it was a great experience for us growing up, which I would recommend to, to any family, really. For sure. So sounds like everybody was really uh, particularly pro-animal and, and really had a sense of compassion. So uh, can you identify anything more specific in that childhood that maybe shaped what became, at least later, your professional path? I don't know about childhood. Um, I, I can tell you kind of what I did in, in my profession. I went to school for, for telecommunications and sports journalism. Yeah, I was going to ask Florida. about that for sure. And, yeah. and all, ever since I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was work in sports radio. And I wanted to work in sports radio. I wanted to cover the National Hockey League. I, you know, I wanted to do all that. And, and I did it. I, I moved I right out of college. I graduated, moved to Denver, Colorado. And I, I worked for a local ESPN affiliate in the area. And we were covering the Colorado Avalanche. I was doing what I wanted to do. And man, ever since I was little, and Duncan, I hated every single minute of it. And really? People Why? Tell the story all the time. People say all the time, you know, you do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And for those that have that experience, I really respect that. For me, it was the opposite. I took that thing I loved, and I turned it into a job. And um, I was working at the radio station. I was getting only a few hours. And I was working kind of nights and overnights, and I needed a, another job. And I, my wife at the time had worked in animal behavior through college, and she worked at the local animal shelter, and there was an opening there. And I got in a position to work at the local animal shelter, and I originally applied for a job as the pet photographer because I was like, that's kind of associated with what I did with my career. It's still behind a camera, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I didn't end up getting that job. I ended up working in the intake lobby of the local nonprofit animal shelter. And I'll tell you what, the it was very tough, and it's a tough industry, and we'll get into that as I'm sure we'll talk today. But yeah. I got more enjoyment and, and, and pleasure and satisfaction and a feeling of accomplishment working one day there than I did working, you know, five days, you know, covering what I thought I loved, which was, which was hockey. Wow. So that really kind of just between my childhood of, of having the pets and really loving animals and then working directly with them and seeing the impact I was making every single day and going home and saying, Hey, I saved X number of animals lives today. That was pretty cool. And that's, I kind of hold on to that. And I've kind of shaped my career from there on out. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's so interesting. It sounds like you were as surprised as anyone that that uh, the whole kind of what seemed like passion 
for and fulfilling the sports radio, hockey specifically thing, just didn't really measure up to what you had expected. And then kind of uh, just to sort of pick up some extra dough or supplement your income or whatever, uh, working at, uh, you know, in, in the animal thing. But it sounds like really that almost resonates with the Calico story from when you were a youngster. Just because, yeah, it seems like you can draw a pretty straight line from those. Yeah, no, no question. I think when you look at everything, I mean, I've I've always been a huge proponent of everything happens for a reason. You get you get driven to the places where you're where you're meant to be and where you're needed the most. And I think that's a huge indicator of that. Is you know, I liked it. I mean, working sports. I was. I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back. I was good at it. I went to school for it. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But it wasn't what I was meant to do, and this is definitely what I was meant to do. Yeah. And so even just that first. Job just at the intake desk and whatever. That's when you kind of felt like, holy cow, this is like uh, I would have never predicted this because I was doing what I wanted to do and what was predicted for me. But holy cow, this is this is this is it for me. Yeah, and 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 that intake lobby. I tell this story all the time. You know, you hear the phrase, "Everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten." Mm-hmm. If you want to learn anything about the animal welfare industry, go to your local nonprofit or government shelter that's an open admission shelter, and go to the intake area, and you will learn ninety to ninety-five percent of what you need to know about the animal welfare industry. I've worked with, I, I, I learned so much working in that organization in Denver, Colorado. We took in twenty-one thousand animals a year, oh and it goodness. was me and five other people that were working in that lobby. Wow, and it's a very tough industry, as you know. As you've talked to some great people that have worked in this industry, yeah. it'll burn some people out. I mean, that that working in that environment, twenty one thousand animals a year, open admission, taking in a hundred to one hundred and twenty animals a day, um, it was very difficult. But we learned a lot, and I'll say a lot of people did burn out. But man, the people that came out of that intake lobby with me are COOs and and regional directors and executive directors and assistant directors for great organizations across the country now. Yeah, and so I'll encourage everybody if you if you're having trouble with your staff or you're having trouble gas grab asking really what this animal sheltering and animal welfare industry is all about, send them to an open admission lo- uh, shelter and have them you know, shadow in the intake lobby for a week. And they will just learn so much respect for this industry, and they'll learn the skills and, and the compassion and the empathy that they need to truly help people in their community. And just for people listening who might not know, can you just briefly describe what open admission means? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the big shift in the in the industry now is, is more of a managed admission. You want to take into the in, take into the organization animals that truly need to come into your shelter. So that's like our shelter here in Pasco County, Florida. Is we're we're helping animals that truly are in need, animals that are are stray and homeless, animals that are sick and injured, animals that are aggressive. We're going to take those animals in, and we're going to redirect folks that need to maybe rehome their animals or are looking for another animal, you know, uh, looking to rehome their animal or put their animal in a different situation. We're going to redirect those uh, or people to special rescue groups or private home-to-home, open admission shelters. It's kind of an old-school method, but there's still plenty of them out there. Organizations that will just take every single animal that comes in through the front door without question. Yeah. And so you're seeing this giant shift in the industry to control this giant overpopulation of our shelters to this more limited admission or managed admission, but there are still shelters out there that are strictly open admission because they feel that's the need for their community um and they're very very difficult to work in and you do see that's where you see those really really high volumes of it intake 20 30 40 thousand animals a year yeah so uh, a couple things one is that um it's really interesting having worked in and around uh showbiz for a lot of my career what you're describing about working on that admission desk uh, or, uh counter really reminds me in some ways of the people that say, if you want to get started in, in show business, start in the mailroom at an agency. Yeah. And then, you know, you can go for all kinds of places. If you want to be an agent, great. If you want to be a manager, you want, 
want to be a producer, want to be any number of things, but that training uh, is is rough, but, I mean, it gets you so well equipped, and it just sounds like such a direct parallel to what you're describing. Yeah, we had this kind of super antiquated thing um, in Denver, and it, it, it's closed down now because the industry has changed so much. We had something called night kennels, uh, where somebody could anonymously surrender an animal or bring in a stray animal in the middle of the night and, and basically put them in this indoor-outdoor kennel, and then in the morning, our staff had to go in and kind of handle those animals. And, Duncan, there were 10 kennels, and some days we would walk in, and there'd be 30 to 40 animals put in those 10 kennels. Oh, my goodness. Cats and dogs, aggressive dogs or feral cats. There'd be you lizards and, and, and tarantulas and snakes, and you never knew what you were walking into. And so where, where some people wouldn't, you know, I, I do understand the unbelievable empathy that you build in those experiences because you, you learn so much so quickly. Um, we learned fractious animal handling and how to handle dangerous situations and multiple animals and infectious disease control. Oh, my gosh, we, had, we dealt with so much ringworm in this industry. Mm. And just learn, You learn so much in that environment. Yeah. That's not to say that you can't learn that at another shelter. I mean, there's you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of managed or, or limited admission shelters in this country where you can where you can learn that too. And it's just yeah. you know, it's a lot it's it's a lot to take in, but it's great and it's great knowledge to have. And once again I keep going back to that word, but it's a big word for me, which is empathy. You learn the empathy for the need of the community and your coworkers and your organization and your mission, which is really cool. Yeah. Well that's great because I think you know, a different kind of person uh might be in that same um admissions desk or counter and just be so overwhelmed if you're taking in 21,000 animals per year, where pretty soon your empathy starts to waver, at, you know, yeah. and, and, and worse. So, yeah, we call, it, we call it compassion fatigue in this yeah. machine. It's not unique to animal welfare. I mean, you see it a lot of times in 911 and, and, and medical care first responders. For sure. Compassion fatigue is a big thing when you're, when you're constantly helping and helping and helping. It's, it's hard in this industry to balance, um, you know, that, that kind of compassion and empathy for the community without resenting the community in certain situations. And what we've had to do as leaders here, specifically in Pasco, is, is empower our team to realize that, you know, you're, you're helping. As bad as it may seem, these people are coming to you for help. They're at their lowest point with their animals, and they need your help. And as bad as it may seem, we're here to help them. And we, we've kind of empowered our team with that knowledge, and it's really helped them to grow and understand and, and create that empathy for our community here in Pasco, which is, we, we've leveraged that into tremendous success for our organization, as you mentioned at the top of the show. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, uh, just for people who might be only tuning in now, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Spencer Conover, Assistant Director of Pasco Animal Services. He's won national rec- uh, recognition for his work there and is viewed as a rising star in the animal shelter world. And the first person I heard that from is Spencer's boss, so that's no small thing. Thing. Uh, if you'd like to ask Spencer a question about shelters, adopting, fostering, uh, other related issues, or just offer a comment in that realm, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So let's talk a little bit about how things progressed from kind of what was almost like on a whim just to pick up some bucks, uh, going to work uh, and landing at the admissions uh, counter. Let's walk through some of your other jobs that you know kind of proceeded from there. Yeah, I uh, had a great opportunity after leaving uh, you know the Dumb Friends League, which is an amazing uh, organization in Denver, Colorado. It's the and by the way, in Denver, I, I have to ask because I was preparing for this, I thought the Dumb Friends League. The, yeah. What what is the origin of the name? Because it's hard to imagine a brainstorming session that led to like, hey, this is what we'll call it. 
my most common question ever when I mention my, my employment history. Yeah. The Dumb Friend League is in Denver, Colorado. It's the largest shelter in Denver, Colorado. It's named after a sh- the shelter in Denver is over 110 years old now. And it's named after a shelter that's older than that in London, uh, in London, England. And it was created back when the word dumb meant couldn't speak. Mm. So the shelter is literally named after those, okay. those who can't speak for themselves. I figured and it so, had to have some kind of cool story absolutely. like that because it would be like, okay, don't you think we should change the name now, but not not, yeah. not, not with well, that history. It's funny you mentioned that while I was there, and I haven't worked for their organization in several years, but while I was there, they thought that. They're like, oh, my gosh, this is 100 years now. Like The meaning has changed. They would do market research, and the name, because the shelter is so big and it's been around for so long, yeah. the name had 97% name recognition in the community. Yeah, you so don't want to like, mess oh with gosh, that. We can't, we can't change the name. Like everybody For sure. Knows us. Yeah. So when you move from Denver to Salt Lake to, to Land Lakes, Florida, People ask you about Dumb Friends League, and they'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. But if you talk to anybody in Denver, Colorado, they know that wonderful shelter that just helps, you know, tens of thousands of animals a year. Yeah, really. oh, that's great. That so, makes, yeah, makes perfect from sense. From there, I had a great opportunity with a colleague of mine. Um, he had left the Dumb Friends League and went to work for a great national organization, uh, Best Friends Animal Society, based out of Kanab, Utah. And he was uh, working at... Um, local adoption center in Salt Lake City and asked me if I was willing to go out there and be a supervisor and, and, and uh, organizational manager for their organization. And Best Friends Animal Society, for those of you that don't know, incredible, incredible organization. They uh, came to fame. Uh, they were originally found in the 80s in southern Utah in Kanab. They have a beautiful sanctuary there. And were originally just that. They were just a sanctuary in southern Utah and then gained a lot of fame uh, in the early to mid-2000s. They were heavily involved in the Michael Vick dogfighting case. And they yeah. were uh, several dozen of the dogs from the Michael Vick dogfighting case and gained a lot of national notoriety for that, the great work they did with the Victory Dogs. And so they became a national organization after that, and they have regional adoption centers, uh, life-saving centers in New York City, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, um, and they have national conferences, uh, which we're getting ready to attend here pretty soon. Um, a great national organization. We had a lot of fun. Um, the big thing that came out of that was um, an appreciation for neonatal kittens, believe it or not. A friend of mine, my wife, was working with the organization at the time as well. And uh, the biggest life-saving gap in Salt Lake City at the time when I was there, and life-saving gap is you know, animals that are dying unnecessarily, and how do we save those that need to be saved that, that can be saved? Mm-hmm. And the biggest life-saving gap there was neonatal kittens. Shelters didn't have the resources to, to help neonatal kittens. They were coming in, you know, kittens that are under two pounds that, you know, can fend for themselves. They need to be fed every two, three hours. And so we opened a, a neonatal kitten nursery and it saved uh, the first years about 1,800 kittens. Um, and it was an incredible experience, and just to help the local shelters, the, the local municipal shelters, and we saw that direct impact at the local municipal level. And I think that's kind of where my mind started to go to. Okay, I'm working for these nonprofit organizations, but, man, I'm seeing the impact that it's making at the local municipal government level and the shelters that normally have a bad rap. Can we take these programs and put them in the government level mm. to, to kind of, I don't know, essentially cut out the middleman, right? Like, we're the nonprofit. Why, you know, just take these programs and put them with the government shelter. And so my wheels started kind of turning there when working for Best Friends. But a great organization met tons of amazing people, and they are still such an inspiration. They're a national organ. If you haven't uh, looked into their organization, please do. They're heavily involved in the Puppy Bowl uh, every year, and they, uh, they help feature... Uh, rescue and adoptable dogs in the Puppy Bowl every year. If you guys don't know that, it airs before the Super Bowl, and they, they help you know feature adoptable animals instead of animals from breeders, which is really, really cool. But a great national organization that's had sure. a lot of fun working with. 
Yeah, I was going to say that uh, their CEO, Julie Castle, is uh, phenomenal. And probably one of my favorite uh, interviews of the last few months was with her. Julie is so inspirational, too. She's getting ready to do the keynote speech, as she does often at the Best Friends Conference. And it's just, it's always riveting. You know, she always has something inspirational to say. And we go to these conferences in the middle of summer. And that's like the busiest time for animal shelters because of kittens and, and, you know, people traveling and and stray dogs. And it's always such a stressful time. And then you go to these conferences and hear someone like Julie, Julie Castle, the CEO of of Best Friends, speak. And you're like, bam, I'm inspired for the next six months. Here we go. I'm recharged. You know, it's always great. And also, interestingly, it's another story, not unlike your own, of... Uh, being on a certain prescribed path, she was just on, on like a summer break before she was about to start law school. And she describes how she kind of, she and some friends kind of just wandered into best friends, like as part of just like a road trip before starting law school. And yeah, pretty, pretty soon she abandoned all thoughts of going to law school and talked about how mad her dad was and all these other things, but how it was the best thing she could have done. And she's been there ever since. Yeah, if you are if you are driving through Southern Utah on the way to whether it be Los Angeles or back up to Salt Lake City or, or Arizona or wherever it may be, if you're driving through Kanab, Utah, and you happen to stumble across the be- uh, stumble across the Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, stop in, and I guarantee you there will be a moment when you're there when you go, "Yep, I'm going to give it all up and t- and help animals." Yeah, <laughs> it's just. It's that inspirational of a place, and Julie's story is is incredible for sure. Okay, so so from best friends, uh, sounds like another great round of experience that really kind of helped shape some of your thinking on a broader level. Then then where do we go? Absolutely, I had a great opportunity. I was still very young at the time, but I was in Salt Lake City, and just down the street was the largest uh, nonprofit animal shelter in in Salt Lake City, which is the Humane Society of Utah, and I had a great experience there. I was there for a very short time, and it's kind of an interesting story, and I don't mind sharing it. I've had to, I've had to grow to share this story a little bit, but um, I'm, I was very um, operations-based when I got to the Humane Society of Utah. I had a lot of great experience with operations uh, in, in both Dumb Friends League and uh, Best Friends, and I, I knew how to run an animal shelter. I knew exactly how to run an animal shelter. I knew how to... Um, you know, I knew how to do the budget, and I knew how to do you know supplies, and I knew the the flow of animals through the shelter, and I knew operations of an animal shelter. And I got to the Humane Society of Utah, and in the first year I was there, um, I increased um, revenue, I decreased expenses, I, I increased the save rate, I decreased the length stay of animals in the shelter. Everything was doing really well, and unfortunately, after 14 months, I was let go. I was let go from that organization, and I had to really think about why. And the reason why was I was a bad leader. Mm. I was a poor leader, and I didn't lead people. And it was that moment I realized I had to I had to make a decision, and I had to realize that I've been put in positions of power within this industry, positions of authority, traditional positions of authority. My duty is not saving the animals. My duty is serving the people who save the animals. Mm. And it wasn't until I got to Pasco County, Florida, and I give our director, Mike Shoemate, and our county administrator, Dan Biles, our assistant county administrator, Kathy Pearson, a lot of credit. Um, they really put me on that leadership path, and I, I could have very easily shied away from that and gone back to operations where I felt very comfortable and I knew how to run an animal shelter, but I leaned into leadership, and I, I started to attend leadership trainings in the Pasco County Leadership Development Program, um, but the time with the Humane Society of Utah was very interesting because it also shined the light on, I, I really had experienced and kind of done my time that I felt with nonprofit organizations, and I really felt like I was best served back in the animal shelter, working with the animals that needed help the most. I knew that was at the government municipal level, too. Mm. Uh, it was starting to be kind of a little bit of a recurring theme. 
Absolutely, yeah. I think when, when you look at kind of the work that I knew we were doing with Best Friends Animal Society and the impact it was making in the local community and the government side, and, you know, working with Humane Society of Utah and seeing the impact it was making at the government side and then, and then working at the Dumb Friends League and seeing the impact it was making at the government side, I had worked for almost a decade in these nonprofit organizations, and I thought, hey, let's, once again, let's take these programs and services that are offered at the nonprofit level and pump them into a government shelter, and that's kind of what we're doing here at PASCO, which is, which is really, really cool, and I think that has a lot to do with, you know, the, the support from the community that we've gotten lately. Yeah. All right, so now you are uh, in PASCO. You're back in Florida. You're assistant director of PASCO County Animal Services. So talk a little bit about that job and how much and how, to what degree, you've been able to kind of realize the vision that you, you talked about along your path that kind of started yeah. to come together? Well, first and foremost, I, I was very blessed. I walked into a great organization, a great leadership. Mike Schumate, the director, great leadership team across the board, established uh, individuals at the supervisor level, incredible people. Um, and I was very blessed to walk into a great team. Um, the save rate was already 87% when I got here. Uh, and again, just for people listening who may not know exactly yeah, what the save rate yeah. means, yeah. Absolutely. I apologize, Duncan. The save rate is the percentage of animals that you save. And so the organization at the time in 2018 was taking in about 8,000 animals a year, and they were saving 87% of those animals. And so 13% of the animals were, were dying. And the national standard for no-kill, and you hear that phrase a lot, no-kill. Um, no-kill is a common misnomer in this industry. No-kill mean, doesn't mean no death. No-kill means you're not euthanizing or killing animals for time and space in your organization. There's yeah. always, always, always in an animal shelter setting going to be a percentage of animals that come into your organization and they're either one, beyond rehabilitation medically. They are too sick, um, they are too injured, whatever it may be, to be rehabilitated. And so those animals be mainly euthanized. And it's the true definition of the word to end that animal suffering. There's also a small percentage of animals that are too dangerous to, rehabil- to, to potentially rehabilitate or put back into the community. So you're talking about Florida dangerous dogs or dogs or cats that have injured people, potentially um, uh, killed other animals, things like that. And so you're always going to have that small percentage. The, the no-kill status for a community can vary from community to community, too. For us, it's about 90%. We see mm-hmm. about 10% of those animals that come into our shelter every year that are just too sick or injured or too aggressive to be rehabilitated, and so those animals are euthanized. And so we've, we've maintained that save rate over the last several years. Um, in 2019, we were very, very proud for the first time in the history of the organization to hit a 90% save rate, which is that national average for uh, national standard for no-kill. We hit 91% in 2019. In 2020, it was 94%. Wow. We've bounced between 92 and 94% in subsequent years since then. And I'm really proud of this team because, you know, you know, Mike will say, oh, Spencer's a rising star and when he got here. But the team was already doing the great work. I mean, they were already, um, they had already changed the, the history of the organization. It was as recent as 2012 that Pasco County Animal Services, the save rate was 25%. Oh my goodness! Seventy-five percent of the animals—that's—that's that's a decade ago. That's just yeah. a decade ago. Yeah. So the organization and the county made a, a, a great decision in 2013 to kind of adopt this no-kill model that they called a Save 90 program. They started to fund it, uh, you know, a lot better in 2014 and 2015, and the save rate grew and grew and grew. And you get in great individuals leading your teams. You get in great veterinarians. You get in a great director. And, and all of a sudden you start to see that change in your community and all those pieces come together. And now that's where the organization is, is, is really, you know, at that, at that level where they can sustain this great inspirational no-kill status for the community. And it's something that, I mean, Mike, our director, tells horror stories all the time of the, 
the vitriol and the hatred that would come out from the community when he first got to the organization in 2013 and 2014 because the save rate was so low and you start saving animals and you start working with the community and you start increasing your levels of transparency and honesty and leadership and the community gets behind you and then it, it translates into hey a 90 a literally last month in june of 2022 the save rate for dogs was 98 percent at our shelter oh my god 98 percent of the dogs i don't think i've ever heard the, uh, a, a save rate that high 98 percent of the dogs 92 percent of the cats it was a great wow. month and and it, it would be it would be irresponsible to say i had anything to do with that i i'm i'm the leader behind these guys and the team is the ones doing the work. We have 53 incredible team members here working their butts off every single day. At Pasco, we also operate animal control for the community, 750 square miles, almost 600,000 citizens. And we have 11 animal control officers that bust their butts for the entirety of that of the county. And, and they work hard every single day to not only help those in, uh, to not only control animals in the traditional sense of rabies control and bite quarantines and things like that, but help the community, which has been a leading force of our animal control over the last several years, which is really cool. And so I'm going to quibble with the, at least one notable thing you said, uh, Spencer, just because, mm-hmm. um, you know, to say, yeah, you have a great team, 53 people working hard. I'm sure all those things are true, and obviously everybody's kind of super committed and passionate. But also, it does come from leadership at the top, and, and uh, your story about what happened at, at the Humane Society of Utah, I think, is super telling because it's like, hey, I'm not really a good leader. I got this, this, and this strength, and I got this, this, and this knowledge and experience, but I'm not really a good leader. So obviously, you addressed that and became a good leader, so that's also why you're getting these incredible save rates and other kinds of things where the acclaim is going to the shelter and to yourself and others at the, uh, at the shelter. Well, thank you. Yeah, I realized I had to. And when I got here, like I mentioned earlier, it would have been very easy for me to, to crawl into my little ball and stick to operations and not lead people, but I knew it was a weakness of mine, and so I wanted to lean into it. And from there, there was just Pasco County is such an incredible growing county, and there's such good leadership at the top. We have great support from our county commissioners, our county administrator, our assistant county administrator. One of the beautiful things about Pasco County is our animal control, our animal services, we are not under the sheriff's office. We're not under public safety. We're not under fire rescue. We're not under code enforcement. We're under public services. So mm-hmm. we're in the same branch of the government as parks and recreation, as libraries, as, as, as transportation, as tourism. And so when you look at our, our main motivator, it's serving the people. And I realized in my new role, the people I was serving were not only the 600,000 citizens of Pasco, but the team here at Animal Services. And so I leaned directly into it, and I didn't shy away from it. Worked very closely with the opportunities that were afforded to me here in Pasco County and, you know, graduating from the leadership development program here and working with Best Friends Animal Society, my old friends, to graduate from their executive leadership certification program and getting other certifications nationally in servant leadership and then ultimately culminating in receiving my master's degree in uh, contemporary animal services leadership and leadership studies. And I yeah. think that, I, you know, hey, you're, you're, not, you're not a great leader. Go become a great leader and go get a degree in leadership and learn the skills that you need to, to really, truly help your team. Because I wouldn't have been able to if I didn't. Yeah, no, it's obviously you, you figure out like, hey, the, where did things go sideways in, in Utah? And mm-hmm. here's what I got to do. And you did it. And uh, look, look what's happening now. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit about like wh- the, the the job you have now beyond some of the incredible achievements that you and your team are making. But what what things do you like most, just uh, specifically about the job day to day? I I love the fact that we live in a community, and when we we talk about this all the time, where we have within our region, nationally, whatever it may be. 
you hear the phrase red tape a lot when you talk about government and municipal sheltering. You talk about, oh, we can't get that past our purchasing department. Or you can't get that past our risk department. Or you can't, oh, man, our union would never let us do that. We're very, I'm so blessed to live in a community where we, on a daily basis, get to throw stuff against the wall, try it, and see if it sticks. And that's one of the biggest things that's been the success for us over recent years is we've been able to take so many of these services and programs and opportunities that you would normally associate with a private nonprofit shelter and try it at the government level. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We try. But we've been able to help so many amazing things. I kind of mentioned it last time you and I talked, but, you know, we, we had a, a stray dog uh, a year and a half, I mean, almost a year and a half ago now, come into our shelter, no microchip. Uh, you know, it, it, we hold dogs for, for three days. If they, don't have a, uh, if they don't have a microchip, we'll put them up for adoption, send them to a rescue group, whatever it may be. We held this little dog for about six days, and we came for it, we got it fixed, Actually, we sent it, you know, to a rescue group, and they adopted it out. After about 12 days, um, Somebody from the Internet said, oh, my gosh, I found the owner, I found the owner. Well, fortunately, at that point, it was too late. The dog was gone. Um, and so some of the community was upset. But one thing I love about our community and the job that I get to do every single day is a portion of our community came forward and said, that was awful. How do we prevent that from happening in the future? And we mentioned, you know, hey, that microchip. If you come in and if the dog was microchipped, not only would have not stayed in the shelter, it wouldn't even come to the shelter. The animal control officer would have scanned it in the field, scanned for that little RFID microchip implanted between those dog's shoulder blades, found that owner's information and driven it right back to that pet owner's home. And so a couple of our rescue groups came together and said, we want to make that happen more often. So they donated $500 to separate rescue groups. We matched the $1,000 donation, and we bought a bunch of microchips with it, and we started doing these free microchip clinics. Um, we, did, we have done about five up until late last year, and we got feedback from our community. They were absolutely loving it. It was great for us. We had microchipped over 500 animals for free in our community. And the, the phrase we kept getting was, hey, can you guys do any more? Like, I'm here. Can you guys do rabies shots? Can you do, you know, distemper vaccines? Can you do anything like that? And so we, we listened, and we partnered with a national part organization, Petco Love, and they donated a bunch of vaccines to us. We had a, a local um, vaccine vendor donate vaccines, and we turned those free microchip clinics into free vaccination in microchip clinics. And so since that little incident that happened that most government shelters would have, you know, pushed to the side and said, eh, dog's no longer here, what are you going to do? We've now helped vaccinate and microchip almost a thousand animals for free, completely free to our citizens in the community. Yeah. And one thing for me, you know, to harken back to, you know, me working at the radio station as opposed to the animal shelter, we just did one a couple weeks ago out in Dade City in Pasco County in the east side of the county. And the look of appreciation on these folks' faces to say, hey, I literally didn't have the money to get my dog a rabies vaccine, and now he's safe. Or I literally have no fence, and my dog didn't have a microchip, and now he's safe. He has that microchip. Just really, really cool, really rewarding, and makes working in this industry just 100% worth it. Sounds like really also a classic case, and again, it just shows you the sort of flexibility and and nimbleness of, of, of Pasco County Animal Services of taking... You know, what's clearly a, a pretty bad lemon there with the dog that, you know, got adopted out that already had an owner and making lemonade out of it and uh, serving all kinds of people so that that would never, not only never happen again, but all these amazing pluses happen for the community at large. Absolutely. And, and we're, like you said, the nimbleness is a great word. We're an organization that is constantly trying to change what we're doing to keep up with the industry. The industry is ever changing. Oh, my yeah. gosh. You know, several years ago, and some listeners might, might, might think this way. You know, it, you find a dog, what do you do? You bring it to the shelter, bring it to the shelter, bring it to the shelter, right? That's not the case anymore. We were doing, we're involved in massive national research studies that say 
80, 80 to 85% of dogs that come in that are found are found within a mile of where they live. And so can we give citizens resources to help you find the owner on your own? Can we help you go door-to-door or, or list things on social media outlets like Nextdoor or Facebook or Twitter or something like that? Or utilize something like we've partnered with an organization formerly known as Finding Rover. It's now called Petco Love Lost that utilizes uh, facial recognition technology in pets to help partner with social media to get them back to their owners. Little things like that to where we're always trying to stay on the cutting edge of life-saving in our community. And that's one of those things that I think our community members and our citizens have really tacked onto is, hey, these guys are always looking at what's right to do for the people and the pets in Pasco. And that's one of our biggest motivating factors. That's great. Jeez. So uh, I'm going to let folks know again, this is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Spencer Conover, Assistant Director of Pasco uh, County Animal Services. And uh, we're discussing all kinds of issues about shelters and their shelter, obviously, in particular. So if you have any questions about adopting, about chipping, about uh, shots, about fostering, whatever else that might uh, sort of loosely fall under the... Uh, Umbrella of Shelter World anyway, to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 so uh, Spencer obviously you're super uh, enthusiastic and, and rightly so things have been going so great and you're just naturally I think sort of a peppy upbeat enthusiastic guy <laughs> I, 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 just, I guess I'm curious just because you know the, the job obviously has so many dimensions to it um I'd be curious, like, what's what's the, maybe one aspect of it that you don't love so much that's like, uh, okay, it's part of the gig, but I really do not like this. I, I think one thing is, is not being able to help everyone. And yeah. that's, that's the biggest problem that we have. If we have individuals in our community, we have 600,000 citizens. And like I said, we have 11 animal control officers. And you know, 12 people do an adoption. We don't, we, we can't help every pet in Pasco, although we definitely try to. You know, we have been contacted. You know, the, the pandemic has been a challenge on everybody, and it's not immune to the animal welfare industry. And we get contacted by media outlets probably monthly that say, hey, I want to do a story about all the animals that got returned after the pandemic. And the reality is that's not the case. Um, we, you know, what happened during the pandemic is everybody went home for two weeks, and they all took an animal with them, and animal shelters were empty, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful time. And the fear was, oh, my gosh, all these people are going to go back to work and they're going to return all those animals. That's not the case. Um, you know, we actually have seen a, a similar, if not lower, return rate uh, post-pandemic. You know, I guess post-pandemic is a relative term, right? We're kind of still in it. <laughs> yeah. But the challenges that we face are new, right? And the two that I'm really struggling with, and we are as an organization, is, is, is twofold. One is individuals losing their homes. Um, yeah. rising rent rates, like you mentioned at the top of the show, inflation. We, we have seen a sharp increase in involuntary abandonments, folks leaving their pets behind after they're evicted, uh, which has been un- very, very unfortunate. And we feel bad for those folks. We want to find a more proactive way to get in contact with them that says, hey, if you are at risk of losing your home, contact us first. We might have a way to help you keep your pet. But we're, we're running into that challenge, and that's always, always a difficult thing because – you know, the human-animal bond is such a strong thing. And for oh, those yeah. individuals to, to make that decision to break that bond because they literally have no other choice is, is, is heart-wrenching, and that's really tough. And secondly, you know, the, the, one of the biggest challenges, I would say even bigger than legal evictions, is access to affordable veterinary care. Mm, we are seeing yeah. folks that are going months to years to decades without taking their pets to the veterinarian because there's just not affordable veterinary care out there. And, you know, we talked about inflation and we talked about 
population increase here in Pasco County, and there's there's tons of veterinarians. There's just not enough to go around, and the folks that we help at, at our biweekly affordable veteran vaccine clinic here at our shelter, we're able to do shots and, and microchips and, and licenses, but we're not a wellness clinic. And we see people all the time and say, hey, I literally don't have the money to take this animal to the vet. Can you guys look at it? And to have to say, unfortunately, we don't do wellness, we're looking at, at growing that in the future. And can we I'm get sure. you know, funding to open a wellness clinic? Because we see that that is without a doubt in our community. And I'm sure it, you know, we sit in these national calls and talk to our national partners, and that's, that is the number one thing facing our community right now is lack of veterinarians, first and foremost, in this industry, and then lack of affordable veterinary care for, for our citizens in underserved areas. And so those are the two biggest yeah. things that kind of that get to me, but it's also at the same time, Duncan, it's inspirational and motivating, and how do we solve that problem, right? And right. How do we you know, get the funding for that, and how do we help those folks? And so um, it's, it's job security, and it's, it's motivating, and it, it helps us you know, show up to work every day with, with something to do. Something tells me uh, on the uh, Spencer Conover to-do list will be wellness veterinary care somehow, sometime, some, some, some way. That's, that's coming. You know, yeah. we, we see it, we hear it all the time, and it's, it's definitely on the horizon. Cool. All right. So we're unfortunately we're nearing the end of our time. I want to take at least one or two of the calls that we've uh, got coming in. Sure. Hi, hi. You're on Talking Animals with Spencer Conover. Hi, Spencer. Many accolades to you and your staff. I was interested and didn't catch your title of your educational path. I'm not certain how somebody would enter this field. So if you could explain that a bit, please. What an incredible question, and I think it, it, it goes back to my friends at Best Friends Animal Society, and they saw a need. Um, in this industry, when you were a kid and you want to work in this industry, what do you say? I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a veterinarian. And if I had a dollar for every kid that came through and volunteered with us, I'm going to grow up to be a veterinarian. I, I wouldn't have to work here. You'd, you'd, have, the, you'd have the funding for the wellness veterinary I, care. I'd be able yeah. to have a wellness clinic. Right, exactly. exactly yeah. The problem is veterinary work is such a small part of this industry, right? When I talk about 53 team members, I, we have two veterinarians. There's 51 other people that work here. And so Best Friends Animal Society saw an opening to inspire people who are, are, are going through their, their associate's degree or bachelor's degree and don't know what they want to do, and they kind of want animals, but they, they kind of want to work with animals, but they don't, they don't want to go through the eight years and $600,000 of debt to become a veterinarian, right? And so they opened up this track in partnering with, um, they're based in Southern Utah. There's a great uh, university there called Southern Utah University, and they've created this beautiful partnership. All the information is on their website, suu.edu. And I was lucky enough to get in um, very, very early in their partnership, and I was able to, to partner with them through their executive leadership certification program, which counted for nine credits toward my master's degree, and then eventually through Southern Utah University, I graduated with a Master of Interdisciplinary Studies, and those two disciplines were Contemporary Animal Services Leadership and Leadership Studies. And so Best Friends Animal Society, my former employer, who is an incredible national partner, partnered with them very closely to create this curriculum to help create the next generation of leaders in this industry who are focused on life-saving and leadership and development and inspiration and motivation. And I'm very, very blessed to be, I was actually the second person um, to graduate with that degree in this country, and there's been many more since, and we're, we're a part of this next generation of of leaders in this industry who are going to help shape it into this this no kill model um, for our communities. Okay, caller. I hopefully that gives you. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Okay. Hi. We're just about at the end of our time. If you have a quick question for Spencer Conover on talking animals. Hey. How y'all doing, Spencer? Yeah. yeah. 
that you're amazing, and I guess I'm speaking for a lot of people. I just want to say thanks for everything you're doing for these animals, and we need more people like you. Thank you. I wow. really appreciate that. That's... I really, really appreciate that, man. You don't have to say that, and and you know, yeah. I, I really hope that if nothing else, the, the focus on the, the people and the animals in our community can be shared by other communities out there because it's, it's been really special for us to be a part of. Don't get me wrong. We face our challenges every day, but yep. we're, we're doing a lot of good, and we hope to inspire others too. Thank you. Caller, thank you so much. That's the perfect point at which to leave this conversation because we just are pretty much at the end of our time anyway. So thank you kindly for that call and that comment to Spencer. We have been speaking with Spencer Conover, Assistant Director of Pasco County Animal Services. If you want to find out information, go to pascocountyfl.net and search for animal services, and you'll find out all kinds of information. Uh, both that we covered and stuff that maybe we didn't have a chance to cover today. So, Spencer, thanks so much. I know you got to head to the airport for yet another thing to get um, better trained or better educated or whatever your next uh, motivation is. But yeah, thank you so much for talking at, talk at a conference about the great work that we're doing and hope to inspire some more, too. Well, there you go. So thanks so much for joining us again on Talking Animals, and thanks for all your great work on behalf of all our animal friends. Duncan, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to you and your listeners and everybody for taking the time. And we really appreciate the, the attention that you all are putting on animals in need in our community. Thank Thanks you. so much. Take care. In a moment, I'll speak with Joe Capozzi, a veteran journalist now posting news stories on his own site by JoeCapozzi.com, including a new one examining all the circumstances surrounding the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office's controversial killing of that Florida black bear. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece not unrelated to my conversation with Spencer Conover. This is Greg Fitzsimmons with a piece called Adopting a Dog, today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. So we rescued a puppy, which is great. You've rescued a puppy before. Okay, beautiful. It's a great thing. Millions of dogs are put to sleep every year because there's not enough homes. And you go in, and you're a hero. You go save one. You walk in there, and you think it's going to be easy. They're like, I'll take that one. They're like, oh, not so fast, asshole. First, you got to fill out this 28-page application. Right? Name, social security number. If you and your wife divorce, who gets custody of the dog? I don't know. We never talked about it. Thanks for planting that seed for us. And then they set up a home inspection. I'm not making this up. Literally, woman shows up to my house. Clipboard, little beard, light beard. Didn't see it at first. And now she's looking around my house while I stand out front waiting. Just nervous that she's going to come out and be like, yeah, um, we're just going to go ahead and kill the dog. doesn't feel right to let him live here the way you do. Take him out back and just shoot him. We feel pretty good when we rescue a dog, don't we? Right? We feel like heroes. Meanwhile, there's two types of shelters in the country. There's shelters for dogs, the Humane Society. Shelters for people. Halfway house. Not even a whole house. Half a house. And then we rescue from the other one. We grab a dog, we bring him home, and we wash him, and we fix him. We bring him to bed, we pet him, and we hold him, take him for a walk. And then we walk around a human that's laid out on the sidewalk to pick up from the dog that we rescued. What's wrong with that picture? Why don't we rescue from the other place? Just go in there, I'll take that guy, bring him out. Take him home, give him a steak and a shave, a little corduroy bed in the corner. Come on, freckles, let's take a walk. It's Dennis. I told you my name's Dennis. 
circles. Come on, let's go outside. Been outside a lot. Kind of want to stay inside for a while. Your friend comes over. He's cute. What is he? I think he's Dutch. That was the Greg Fitzsimmons in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Adopting a Dog, taken from his album Life on State. Now it's time to speak with Joe Capozzi, a veteran journalist who spent much of his career at the Palm Beach Post and now regularly posts news stories on his own site by JoeCapozzi.com, including a deeply reported piece about the controversial bear killing recently in South Florida. So this is Joe Capozzi on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Joe. Hey, Thanks for uh, coming on, talking animals again, and uh, talking about this. So let's start with a brief overview of you and your journalism career. Just uh, mentioned passing, but let's let's hit a couple of key points about that before we dive in. Sure, I've been a journalist for about thirty-one years. I uh, all of it in Florida, uh, most of it at the Palm Beach Post, and I did a little bit of everything: uh, news, government reporting, sports. I covered the Miami Marlins baseball team for about fifteen years. And uh, I ended there on the uh, investigative team and uh, just the state of newspapers around the country. You know, they're losing revenue, constantly cutting staff back. So I ended up uh, taking a buyout offer at the end of 2020 and uh, decided to just, I got out of the newspaper work and I, it was still in me. I wanted to keep writing, so I launched my website. It's, uh, it's about a year old now and it's not making a lot of money, but, you know, it's, I'm, I'm following my passion and I'm trying to uh, fill the void where other media outlets aren't covering stuff that that needs to be covered. Uh, that's kind of what my goal and my mission has been. Oh, that sounds really good. So for better or worse, you don't have an editor assigning you stories. So how do you decide what things to cover on uh, on your website now? <laughs> you know, I, it's, I just use my same instincts that I had when I was at the Palm Beach Post and I just look into stuff that I think is interest, stuff that interests me, stuff that I feel like would be a, like for lack of a better term, a good Sunday story, which yeah. is, a, you know, the casual term for you open up the Sunday paper and there's a nice index piece about something. And some of the stuff's offbeat, some of it's serious. So it's, it's very subjective, uh, I, I guess, my selection process on what I do. But again, I try to... Uh, do stories that I think should be done that aren't being done by the uh, so-called mainstream media outlets. Yeah, so uh, obviously the bear story, I think, fits squarely into those uh, parameters. So, And you clearly intended to go deep with lots of reporting on this one, just because I guess the nature of the story sort of like demanded it, kind of? Yeah, yeah, and, and that story was reported first by uh, a lot of the TV stations in the local newspaper, and they did a pretty good job with it. But to me, um, you know, just in reading their stories, I thought there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper conflict there about why the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office did what they did when the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has constitutional authority over all wildlife in Florida. I thought there was a good story there. Um, so I guess my piece was the first one really to, to dig into the back and forth that went on between the two agencies. 
if yeah. that makes any sense. No, it really does, because I, I mean, one of the things I thought was so, I mean, the story has a lot of stuff just even about people living in the neighborhood where the bear was and sort of being enchanted and taking pictures or whatever. So it covers all kinds of ground that's, you know, sort of friendly and nice. And, and But, but the, you know, the thing that's not so nice, obviously, is ultimately this bear got killed. And, and why the bear got killed, as you kind of note because of your great reporting, is that there was this sort of turf battle between these agencies and, and worse, the agency that really didn't have the right or the jurisdiction to, to take control of the situation did and uh, ignored the, uh, all the you know, admonitions of the other one and, and, and shot the bear. Yeah, that's, that's really a tragedy. And the one question I haven't been able to answer yet is like how often that happens because, you know, the FWC responds to animal calls all over the state and obviously there's, they're dealing and working with law enforcement agencies, sheriff's office, police departments. And I, I was, I'd love to get the answer on how often they clash. Uh, but, you know, very few, if, if it does happen, very few ever make the news, but this one did. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of the folks in Royal Palm Beach were kind of upset because, you know, as you said, they were amused with it, taking pictures, texting each other. Um, I mean, they knew it's a wild animal. They were staying in the house, but they were clearly enchanted with it. And no one thought that it was going to attack them. And when they found out later, mainly through the media, that the uh, bear was killed, you know, they were they were pretty upset. I'm sure. And and the thing is, yeah, I think a good question you just raised is like, how often does something like this happen? And the, the other question I have, which is unfortunately probably just calls for speculation, but given all the people you spoke to and all the great reporting you did do for the story, like... What do you think would happen next time if there were a comparable situation and, and did, you know, somehow PBSO and FWC were to sort of be at the center of it again? Do you think that PBSO would back off and handle it differently, having perhaps learned from this thing or not necessarily? I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, they're, they're adamant that uh, the bear had nowhere to go when it was a public safety issue. Yeah. Maybe because of the uh, pressure and the publicity over what happened last month that they would do another tack. But I don't want to badmouth PBSO, but I know that, you know, there's just like you alluded to the turf battle. They, uh, they're going to do what they think needs to be done. Yeah. And I wouldn't put it past them if, if it happened again that they would that they would put a bear down again if they had to. Right, so it'll be case by case, but they'll, they, they, I guess in a certain case, if there was something similar that happened, they'd say, well, again, we have to protect the public, and we had to do this, and here we go again. Yeah, exactly, and there's a lot of animal rights groups around the state that are upset over this. I know Bear Warriors United, they're uh, collecting money to uh, file a lawsuit against people. Yeah. So just well, to force the uh, deputies to undergo training to deal with wildlife. Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, something tells me you're going to be tracking that, so uh, maybe we'll keep checking. So we should tell people more specifically, all, all your work, including this great story, is at ByJoeCapozzi, and Capozzi is C-A-P-O-Z-Z-I dot com. So it's ByJoeCapozzi dot com. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals and your great story on this uh, super important uh, issue. Uh, thanks for having me, Duncan. Take care. Thanks. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Scott Elliott is up next after NPR News. <laughs>